0: Our passage begins with Paul reminding uh, the church at Ephesus that he is writing from prison. So he says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life that's worthy of the calling you have received. Worthy of the calling you have received. You remember in about uh, ninth or 10th grade you took algebra? And one of the premises that you learned in algebra was that whatever is on one side of the equation and then there was an equal sign and the other side of the equation, they had, to, they had to equal out, meaning they had to have the same weight. If you added two to this side, you had, you had to add two over here. If you divided by whatever, you had to divide by over here. That is the, the picture of this, of this sentence in Greek. There's a little equal sign, and it says, your life is supposed to equal your calling. So your calling is is supposed to be demonstrated in, an, in a similar fashion, in a similar way, in a sin, similar build-up, uh, with a similar kind of importance as your calling. And, and in our culture, there's not a lot of conversation about calling. Now, teachers, I, I do hear that from time to time. I hear people say, well, so-and-so, uh, and, and I, I have a calling on my life as a teacher. Or sometimes... People in medicine, I will hear that, a doctor will say, I have a calling on my life uh, from a medicine standpoint, but, but other than that, the, the regular run-of-the-mill man or woman in the pew does not talk a lot about their calling. So I got to thinking about where, where are some examples of people who understood a calling on their life, and uh, as many of you know, somewhere between my junior and senior year in high school, my parents, we all moved to England. And uh, the westernmost part of England, in Cornwall. And uh, I I began to be fascinated with the British monarchy at that point. I I was really interested in it. I started reading it. I started studying it. The guy I was dating at the time, I I tried to get him to take me to this really nice restaurant in in a town adjacent to where we lived. And it was a very expensive restaurant, and so he said, I'll take you there if you memorize all the kings and queens of England. So I memorized all the kings and queens of England. I wanted to go to that restaurant, I got it all. <laughs> um, and ever since, I've had a fascination with, with the monarchy. And right now, they're kind of in a tiff over you know, Prince Harry, and he's renouncing this and that. And I, I, I decided last week to go back and say, well, what was the coronation like when, when Queen Elizabeth agreed to become the queen, uh, her calling was as a monarch. What was it like? What did she agree to? What did she say? How did she, how did she propose or vow or agree in terms of living out her life? And so I looked up, and they actually have a, a, an order of service for the June 1953 coronation of, of Queen Elizabeth II. I was fascinated. Listen to this. So as she, she approaches, and it, and it was held at uh, Westminster Abbey, one of my favorite places on the earth, as she approached the entrance to the church, the, the, uh, the archbishop began to quote Psalm 122. And he read the whole psalm. You go, oh, that's kind of interesting. What, what happened next? Well, then they recognize that it's her, and the crowd screams, God save the queen. You could expect that. Trumpets are sounding. And so now she starts to actually go inside the abbey. And when she does, the first thing that happens is she takes an oath. So the the archbishop asks this question. He says, your majesty, are you willing to take the oath? And the queen answered, I am willing. The archbishop then says, well, will you solemnly promise and swear to govern the peoples of the United Kingdom of Great Britain? And he lists all the countries according to their respective laws and customs. And so far, I'm going, yeah, yeah, okay. She's going to be a monarch. Then she says, I solemnly promise to do so. He goes on. Will you, to your power, cause law, injustice, and mercy to be executed in all your judgments? She says, I will. And he says, will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain the laws of God and the profession of the gospel? Now I'm sitting up paying attention. Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain in the United Kingdom the Protestant Reformed religion established by law? Yes, I will. Will you maintain and preserve the settlement of the Church of England, the doctrine, the worship, the discipline, and the government thereof? Yes, I will. Will you preserve the bishops and the clergy and all their rights and privileges of this I promise to do? And I'm going, wow. And at that point, I'm waiting for them to take the sword out and do one of these routines. They don't do that. They take out a Bible, and they lay the Bible in front of her. And and she says, the things which I have have here before promised, I will perform, I will keep, so help me God. And they hand her a Bible, and she kisses the Bible and signs the oath. And then, as she is getting ready to go to the next portion, where they're going to give her the scepter and the orb and the bracelets and the robes and all that, before she goes out, that, that same archbishop looks at her and says, Oh, gracious Queen, to keep your majesty ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God, as the rule for all the whole life and government of Christian princesses, we present you this book. What book? The Bible. And he goes on to say, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Hmm. Wow. Now, there is a calling. <laughs> I mean, there is a calling. Back to uh, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, hey, we ought to live our lives in such a way that one side, our life, actually equals or has similar value to the calling that we have been receiving. And he says, let me tell you what that ought to look like in a very practical way. In verse number 2, he says, be completely humble and gentle. This is what your character ought to look like. Be patient. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort, verse 3 says, to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And then he goes on to talk some more about what that unity will look like. So he's describing these character qualities that ought to be the touchstones of the life that is in, in response to the calling that God has on that life. So the first characteristic that he uses is humility. Most women, if you ask them what is the most attractive thing about a, a guy, once you got past the teeny bopper stage, you might say something about their character. And very often the character quality that will come up very, very quickly is a, a sense of humbleness, that they had humility, that they were conscious of both their strengths and their weaknesses. They realized that they were the creature the creature, not the creator. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, in verse number three, it says, "To think of yourselves with sober judgment, not too high, not too low." When the person says, um, and you ask them about, "So what do you do? Or what are you good at? Or tell me about yourself?" Oh, I, I'm just a, you know, I'm just a housewife. I, I'm just, a, I'm just, a, I'm just a. That person is not using sober judgment because there are gifts there, there are abilities, there are things that God has has given each of our lives. On the other hand, someone that's so puffed up is not, is not realizing, well, I, I might have some, you know, if, if we ask Hannah tonight, Hannah, can you sing well? Answer, she should say yes. She should say, she should say God has given me a set of pipes and a, and a song and a heart for worship, and I love expressing it. That would be sober judgment. There is one place in our Bible where Jesus describes himself. In Matthew chapter eleven and verse number twenty nine. Turn there and, and, and look for yourself. What are the two words that he uses to describe himself? Only place in our Bible where he describes himself. Matthew eleven, twenty nine. What are the two words? Gentle and humble. Gentle and humble. Gentle and humble. What is gentleness? Well, in our culture, if we say, say somebody has a gentle spirit or a gentle nature, we're, we're almost talking about, you know, a little milk toasty, a little, uh, not a lot going on, kind of a gentle spirit, not, not, not having a lot of power or oomph or passion. They're just kind of gentle. That's not a good look at that, that Greek word. That Greek word has the idea of passion, or instinct, or power, but under control. Under control. It's like the picture of a bunch of wild horses, and they're out on the hill, and they're running around going crazy. You bring them down, and the, you know, the horse whisperer or, or gets a hold of them, and begins to train them, and gets them in a harness, and gets the reins on them, and knows what to do with those reins. Suddenly, all that power, all that passion, all that instinct the ability to pull and push and, and make a, a difference is under control. That's the definition of gentleness. It's not milk toast. It's not, you know, easily swayed. It's not, oh, I don't have much going, I'm kind of a gentle spirit. It is, there is a lot going, but it has been submitted to Christ and therefore it's under control. Paul goes on to say, when we're talking about this life that's worthy of a calling, we are, we are to be humble, we're to be gentle. And then he says we're to bear with one another. Now, bearing with one another is kind of an archaic English phrase. We don't, we don't talk about that very much, bearing with one another. The concept or the idea is the, is the sense of holding one another up. It's like scaffolding. So uh, on one of my trips overseas, one of the first ones, I was in, uh, where was I? I was in Thailand. And they were building an extension to the school that I was at, and 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 you know here here's the the, the new part of the building going up, and there was scaffolding of one inch bamboo sticks that somebody had whacked off with a machete and tied with string, and that was the scaffolding around the outside of this building, not exactly you know real secure. When when the Bible says we're to bear with one another, it's the concept of this person needs me, maybe physically to hold them up, you know, to, to get them where they need to go, maybe emotionally or personally or spiritually. Another better picture might be a pod of whales. It's time for them to go up and down our coast, and so everybody enjoys watching them. But, but there, is, there is an understanding in a pod of whales, if one of the whales is sick, what happens is he starts to fall out of the pod. And the rest of the, the whales in the pod realize, oh, you know, Teresa's not feeling well today. And what happens is two of them peel off. If you've ever watched a pod go north or south, they kind of run in parallel lines. Two of them will peel off and come around and get literally side by side. And they will tuck their little bellies underneath the, the pod that's sick. And, and they swim. And, you know, poor Teresa's just been carried along. She's being buried along. <laughs> She's bearing with one another. These guys are just, and off they go. What Paul's saying is that these are the kinds of characteristics of someone who cares enough to let their life be worthy of their calling. The scaffolding, you might think of it in terms of an expression of the fruit of the Spirit. We often look at that. We, we studied it when we were in Galatians in the, the last part of our study. But, but it, it's not fruits, plural, of the Spirit. It's fruit. These are just aspects of the fruit. And, and what, are, what are the aspects of the fruit? It's love and joy and peace and gentleness and kindness and faithfulness and, and self-control. When we are bearing with one another, we got an arm around somebody, and we're helping them get to wherever it is that they need to go. If it's physical, fine. If it's emotional, fine. If it's spiritual, it's fine. Bearing with one another. Providing some scaffolding. And then, he, and then he's talking about loving one another. You know, bearing up one another in love. Our culture wants to think that love is an emotion. It's something you feel. There's an attraction. And so you kind of feel it. And there's a tingling. And then, oh, there, I'm in love but the Bible's definition of love is never a feeling it's always an action love is not how I feel about you love is how I act about you if you don't believe me go to 1 Corinthians 13 where it lists all the characteristics of love what does it say about love love is patient love is kind love does not envy love is not boastful love is not proud the definition, biblically, of love is when I choose to put your needs above mine. You really know when two people love each other, whether they're friends or husband and wife or, or parent and child, if that relationship is such that the one who is asserting their love is genuinely putting the other guy's needs first, then then you can talk about love. Not the feeling. Ooh, I love being around. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's nice. That's a, that's a bonus. But we all know that emotions and feelings fade based on what we eat sometimes. <laughs> right? So what we need is something more, more concrete. And that's why the Bible says that love is an action. It's something we do. We put the other guy's needs before our own. That's when we know we're living the kind of life uh, that, that is... is um, Worthy of our calling. Then he starts in verse, thir- uh, verse 3 Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. Endeavor, some of your translations might say, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Make a real sincere effort. Now, the word unity there is, is key, it's not uniformity. Unity in a biblical sense is 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 harmony. It's not samey same Uniformity is always the same form, or always the same manner, or always the same look. But unity is harmony. Think orchestra. Alright, I never played anything in my life. But I they wouldn't give me even a songbook in the eighth grade to sing. They just passed me by, said, no bother, don't give Jerry a songbook. Uh, I tried to learn to play the piano. You've heard that story. It didn't go well. <laughs> I thought all spiritual women played the piano, and I wanted to learn how to play the piano, and that lasted about four weeks. I have zero musical ability, but I do enjoy it. So I love going to see, for example, every year uh, the uh, Handel's Messiah—that's the word I was looking for. Handel, Handel's Messiah, and that orchestra's up there, and it, even that orchestra is kind of limited. It doesn't have all the, all the pieces. But but the tuba and the piccolo, are, they they are not the same instrument. And when that guy takes that little baton and gets it ready, tap tap tap, and everybody pays attention and he does his thing, they don't all even play the same note. Much less the tuba and the piccolo sounding the same. But there is harmony. So when the, when the Bible talks about that all this stuff, this humility and this gentleness and this bearing with one another and this loving atmosphere, it's supposed to be creating, because we have such a real sincere effort, a harmony in the, in the church. A harmony. That doesn't mean we always see it the same way. That doesn't mean we like the same things. That doesn't mean that it's, that it's to our particular liking. It means that there's a harmonious thing happening in this body. Remember, the whole reason Paul's camping on this unity thing is the Jews and the Gentiles were going at each other. And he didn't want that to continue in the early church. He wanted there to be harmony. He wasn't telling the Jews to not be Jewish anymore or the Gentiles to not be Gentiles. He was just saying when we're together, we're in the body of Christ. We act like an orchestra doesn't matter whether you're a tuba, or a tuba player or a piccolo player. You're, you're going to have a harmonious, you know, merging for the sake of the gospel. And, 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 the, and the net result is something called the bond of peace. One of the ways you can tell the shallowness of a group of Christians is how not unified they are. If if there's a lot of eat going on, that's a bunch of childish Christians. Because the more mature Christian can say, you know what, that song this morning, that wasn't my favorite, but, but maybe it was Barbara's favorite. Or that message that it didn't really resound with me this week, but but maybe it did for Robin or, or, or Bonnie rather. Maybe maybe somebody else, you know, that was an application that really hit home. We don't stand there and go, What well, you know, I didn't like that. When there's that kind of an attitude, you can tell that the person that's in that body is a consumer, not a participant. They've showed up at at church like, like pushing a shopping cart. They walk through the back door with their little shopping cart, and they're really hopeful that everything they want will be in the right aisle. And so by the time they go out, they're pushing their shopping cart, everything according to their needs got met. That is... That is immaturity. That's not the body of Christ. The body of Christ is I don't show up with a shopping cart, I show up with my sleeves rolled up. The body needs me, tuba player, or piccolo in my case. Otherwise, the sound isn't complete. Endeavoring to make a real sincere effort to keep the unity, the harmony. Not always the same thing, not the same manner, not whatever. It's a picture of ligaments around, around your, uh, your joints. Now, you know I've had five knee replacements, and so this last time when I was with the surgeon, he said, hey, I've got this new surgery. It's really gonna work. It's gonna relieve you of all your pain. All we're gonna do is just snip the two ligaments on the outside, and, and then there's a nice little joint, and it'll, it, it was, it'll be so good. Well, I don't know much about anatomy, but I do understand that the ligaments hold the top part of my leg to the bottom part of my leg. It's like rubber bands or something. And if those aren't there, the thing just flops. Paul's using that as a picture, this this idea of the bond of peace. It's the ligaments working. They hold everything together. And then he makes reference to the to this unity by by using seven one words, uh, O-N-E, one. He says that I want you to have a bond of unity. There's one body. You see it? One spirit, one hope, one Lord, one baptism, one God over all. He's just picking up the same theme that he had in chapter 2. He said, I don't want you guys to act like foreigners and aliens anymore. I want you to be brought near, and you get brought near when you when you emphasize the oneness. A few weeks ago, I was teaching, and I got an email from a gal. I made a reference to a political thing. I wasn't talking about politics per se, but I made a reference to something, and she shot me a, an email and, and and wants to talk about uh, those those issues, and I, and I'm happy to do it. But the truth of the matter is is that. That, that divide, if you will means nothing to me in the body of Christ I don't care how you vote just vote show some respect for the fact that you live in a country where you have a privilege that they don't have in many countries around the world so get your tail up, pay attention to the issues, vote vote your conscience and be done with it and have some reasons why you did but it shouldn't separate us We should be able to sit down and have a cup of tea and enjoy our spiritual connection, far more importantly than that. I'm a citizen of heaven. You're a citizen of heaven first, not a citizen of the U.S. of A. And I love my American citizenship like nobody on the face of the earth. I guard my passport like it was whatever when I travel. I am ready to, I'm one of these. I'm one of these. But I'm, I'm one of these second I'm a citizen of heaven first. Now this oneness that he's been talking about might sound a little exclusive. And yes, the gospel is exclusive. John 14.6 I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's pretty exclusive. When we were up in uh, in uh, San Francisco last week I, I was looking for some things that we might do. And I noticed that Oprah Winfrey was speaking up there. And I thought, well, she might be fun to listen to. And then I w- looked it up and saw what she was speaking on, and, and it didn't hold any allure for me, so no thank you, we're not going to go. But she might say, wait a minute, what's this the exclusivity? Don't all roads lead to heaven? Answer, no, on the authority of God's word. So, so we take a little bit of a wrap on the oneness, but wait a minute. What does 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 9 say? It says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's exclusively exclusive only in the sense of, hey, come join us. Hey, the gospel is for all. Christ died so that you too may have forgiveness and redemption. But Paul's camped on this oneness. And then we get to verse 7. There's a little parenthetical section between verse 7 and verse number 10. He says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, and then he quotes out of Psalm uh, 68, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now, pause a second. Generally speaking, commentators, scholars of of Ephesians will tell you that that what Paul's uh, uh, teaching here is a pretty simple, straightforward reference to the fact that Christ ascended. So he died on Friday, he rose again on Sunday, and 40 days later, according to Acts chapter 1, he ascended up into heaven. And so there is a a pretty straightforward reference here to the fact that he is—he is highlighting or showing the, the conquest that by his death and his burial and his resurrection he is showing victory over death and hell and the grave and Satan and sin. Sure, all right, I buy that as a as a straightforward interpretation of those three or four verses. But I got another one to throw at you. This is the uh, Sherry World might be. Uh, kind of interpretation this is not a thus saith the lord this is a (laughs) it's fun to think about it this way so what do you think jesus was doing between friday at three o'clock when he died and sunday morning when the sun came up and he was no longer in the grave what was jesus doing friday night all day saturday saturday night and sunday morning until the resurrection I think he was busy. And here's what I think he was busy doing. You're going to need to turn to Luke chapter 16 for me to make my case. Luke chapter 16. This is the one and only parable in the Bible where we actually have somebody named. Which makes it a little interesting. It says in chapter 16, verse number 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. At his gate, there was a beggar, and his name was Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side, my version says. Your version might say Abraham's bosom. I remember my grandmother told me that word once and I went, what is a bosom? (laughs) She sort of explained to me what a bosom was. It is a term that is used in this this place and and is is understood to refer to a portion of a place called Sheol, Mm S-H-E-O-L. Sheol is a two-compartment place where mankind waited for for the uh, ascension uh, and, the, and the payment uh, for sin. Let me back up and say this. In the Old Testament, let's say I'm Abraham's wife. We know Abraham, so I'm Abraham's wife. How did Abraham and Abraham's wife get saved? The Bible says in, in uh, Hebrews 11 that God saw his faith and it was credited to him for his righteousness. It was a, a, a mark in the, in the school book. Check! You know Abraham, it's credited to you for righteousness. What, what saved Abraham and Abraham's wife? Their faith. They listened to the story that God gave, the explanation of how to display that faith, the keeping of the law. They, they participated in the ceremonial law. They participated in the sacrificial law. They put their faith and trust in what the prophets were preaching about, that at some point in the future, God was going to send a messiah. To, to, to cover and pay for the sin. And by faith, they look forward and put their trust in that. Well, how did Sherry World get saved? Precisely the same way. Only I looked back. By faith, I took what God's word has to say. I looked at the cross behind me and realized that Christ died and and his, his blood was the covering for my sin. And I put my trust and in and Christ and it was credited for Sherry Whirl check for righteousness looking forward saved by faith looking back saved by faith now Abraham and his wife could not go directly to heaven why because the payment had not been made they were just rolling over the penalty of sin Every year, the high priest would go in and smear the blood on the mercy seat. And if God accepted it, the payment for sin rolled forward one more year. And everybody held their breath. And if anyone passed away in in the situation of them having been credited for their faith, God said, yes, that's great, Sherry, Abraham's wife. You are by faith looking forward. That's fine. Good, I'm going to credit you for righteousness. But you can't go to heaven. You can't be with God. There has not been a payment made for that sin. They went to a place called Sheol. Two parts to it. One part, we'll call it room A. Room A is the place that's called Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side. It's just a waiting room. Nothing bad's going on in there. There's no penalty. There's no payment. There's no difficulty. There's no torment. When this, when this, this uh, beggar dies, the angels carried him to Abraham's bosom. Hang around a little while. It's not going to be long. It's not going to be long. And so there he was, that beggar, with Abraham and all of the Old Testament saints. Until Friday afternoon. Payment has been made, it's been accepted the high priest on our behalf, has once and for all, Hebrews says, not once and roll it forward, but once for all, the penalty has been paid. Christ shows up and says, hey guys, you've been waiting a long time. You want to (laughs) go? The expression that's used in the King James Version is he led captivity captive. He took those who had been captured and he captured them himself and took them to glory. It's the it's same phrase that's used in Judges 5 when Deborah and Barak are going to, 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 to get back some people that have been captured in, in their big fight. He goes and gets them and brings them back. There is another passage in 1 Peter chapter 3 that says Jesus preached to the yes. spirits in prison. Now there's an argument what which, which prison and all that and, and I can argue this whole thing the other direction but I think that's what Jesus was doing. Now let's go to room B in shield. In room B is all those who would not put their faith and trust in what Christ or what God had prescribed for them. So so here's all those who would not participate as God had allowed or talked about from the prophet's perspective all throughout the Old Testament. What's it like for them? So I'm going to keep reading in Luke 16. So the rich man also died and he was buried. Now he's in Hades. That's room B. It has a specific name. Where he was in torment. He looked up and he saw Abraham far away. It's on the other side of the room, other side of the building. He can see it, but he can't get there with Lazarus by his side. So he calls out to him, and he says, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Room B is not good. Room B is still sitting there percolating in in, in fire and brimstone. And it does not get cleaned out until we get to the end of the book of Revelation where the keys of, 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 uh, of Hades are turned around and God brings them all out, the great white throne, judgment, and so on. So when we get to our passage in Ephesians 4 and the, and the concept of that verse that's quoted out of uh, uh, Psalm 68, my own personal opinion is this is a very quick, just little snippet of what exactly Jesus was doing from Friday afternoon until Sunday morning. He was going down having himself one heck of a party with the Old Testament saints and allowing them then to go on into heaven because the penalty had been paid. What do you think? Think I'm crazy? No, I like it. Sounds good. I'm going for it. There is no way to support that. There are not 15 other passages. I can't take you to, you know, the definitive word, but I believe that that's as good an interpretation of that. If, even if that's not true, he is definitely saying that by the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, he has made it clear that he is the victor, that he, he has won over the grave, over sin, over death, over Satan. So then in, in uh, verse 11, Paul's going to go on with his, with his story. He says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip uh, his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So Christ is going to give some gifts Now, when we studied uh, a little earlier, a couple of uh, uh, weeks before, I made reference to the spiritual gifts that are in the Bible. I made reference to 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and 1 Peter 4, where there's all kinds of lists of spiritual gifts that are given to to God's kids. And I made a, a, a major point that none of us can sit around and say, well, yeah, you know, Sherry's got the gift of da-da-da, but I don't have that one. I, in fact, I don't have any gifts. We can't do that. It is clear from Scripture, if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have been given both spiritual gifts and, and what I'll call talents and abilities and opportunities. So it rehooves us to try to get some understanding of what our spiritual gift might be so that we can serve the Lord in that realm. Now I, I could serve the Lord as a servant, I could take the spiritual gift of service and I could serve people. yes, I could and, and and certainly the Bible says that that's one of the things we're supposed to do for each other. but for me to have the gift of service,' it, it's, it's like uphill. I got to really think about it. I got to really go. I'm supposed to be nice to Mary i cause, uh, I got to serve her. Her feet are dirty. I got to wash them, then they're dirty. I don't know that I really want to wash them. I, you know, do both me, but I, I got to work hard because it's not my spiritual gift. This one, on the other hand, that is her spiritual gift. It doesn't even take a nanosecond for she would never notice your feet were dirty. Now, take my spiritual gift of teaching. I believe I have the spiritual gift of teaching. I love to teach. I love to study. I love to write. I love to present it. I love to think about it. I love to figure it out. It is not hard at all. I don't know how many times I've said to my friend Barb, or she said to me, how did, how did you get that out of that? <laughs> and and I'm, I've taken to now when I outline something, I'll sit down and I'll say, yeah, I outline something. About <laughs> and she'll go, yeah, but how, how did you get that out? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. That's That's just the way I'm wired. I don't get to take credit for that. I can't go, oh, could you please a a round of applause. (laughs) I I don't get to do that. That is just the way he wired me. Now, when he's talking about spiritual gifts here, he's making a distinction. These are gifts that were given to Christian leaders. These were the, the gifts that he and, and gave the, the, the early church, the leaders of the early church, so that the church could be established. So we see apostles and prophets and evangelists. Now, apostles, during the early church, the first century, they didn't have God's word. They couldn't, they couldn't have a discussion about, well, I wonder what we should do about such and such. Well, I don't know. You look it up. I'll look it up. We'll have it. They had nothing to, to go to. They had no authority. So the, the apostles were the early authorities. God says there are two ways that we'll know who the apostles are. One, they had to have personally seen with their own eyeballs Jesus. And secondly, they had to have actually seen his resurrection. Now the idea about seeing Jesus with their, eye, with their eyeballs, so a discussion starts and somebody says, well, I think it means so-and-so. Wait a minute. I, I listened to Jesus for three and a half years. I'm telling you, this is what he meant. The apostles were in a position of authority to make sure the early church got launched in the right way before the canon of scripture was available. Likewise, the prophets, in the Old Testament, there were two kinds of prophets. One foretold the future. Another just foretold. I'm, I'm prophesying right now. Now, I'm not f- telling the future, but I, I am blatant. I am, I am speaking truth. So the early church needed some very definitive prophets that could come along and say, this is what God intended. This is how the gospel, this is the requirement on a Jew, not this over here. Likewise, when they got to an evangelist, these were the men that traveled around. They didn't stay anywhere very long. They shared the gospel and moved on. Then who came along to shepherd the people? The pastor-teacher. Now, in our English, it looks like it's another role, like there's five of them, a pastor and a teacher. It's really, in Greek, a a, a dash, pastor-teachers, shepherds. God sent people, men, to to lead individual churches, and he gave them gifts. Now, what was the purpose of their gifts? Look at verse number 12. What was the purpose of... That God gave the early churches and churches today, pastor teachers. What is that? What are they supposed to be doing? Equip the saints. For- Equip the saints. Now, in our culture, if I went to all of our churches on Sunday morning and stood outside with a clipboard, and said, "Excuse me, ma'am, what do you think that the the uh, the job of a pastor should be? What do you think our pastors should be doing?" What, what should we pay him for? What, what is his job? People are going to start saying things like, "Wow, he should be out there telling people about Jesus. He should be in the neighborhoods, and you know, he should be teaching, and he should be broadcasting the gospel, and it's his job to get out there and get these folks and build this church. It's his job to make sure that da-da-da-da-da. Really? <laughs> what did we just read? The job of the pastor-teacher was to equip who? Raise your hand. The saints for the work of the ministry. And saints is just a term that applies to anyone who knows the Lord Jesus as Savior. The word equip is a fascinating word. It's a word out of fishing. And I like to fish. When I was a little girl, my daddy took me fishing. When we would fish, we'd have a pole, we'd have a... You know, a line on the pole, there'd be a hook on the end, we'd put some bait on there, if nothing else, just a nice dough bowl, you know, wad up a a little bit of bread on the end of it, and he taught me how to cast that baby out, and and we'd sit on the side of a stream and so on. That's fishing for us, but in the first century, fishing was done off of of boats, and it was done with a net, a large four-sided net, and they'd chuck it out and grab the ends and tuck them under and pull them in and hold them all at the top with the four corners, and then hopefully there were fish inside. If there was a hole in the net, the fish could get out. So when they got to shore, one of the first things they would do is hold the net up and look for any tears, any holes in the net. And if there was a tear, they mended it. Just like you would mend a a blouse or, or something else, obviously not thread like we would use, it would be rope. But they would mend the net so that the guy fishing would be effective. When it says, equip the saints for the work of the ministry, it's to make sure our nets work while we do the work of the ministry. They're there teaching and preparing and mentoring and supporting and directing. It is not their job. It's our job. Our culture has people show up on Sunday morning with the shopping cart. Fill it up. Get my good stuff in here. So when I get back to the car, I have everything that I thought I was supposed to have when I came to church. But the body of Christ isn't supposed to work that way. It's supposed to be me and you doing our bit, gifted in the way that we are, opportunities as we have, life seasons as we have, networking as we have to participate we get the benefit of them shoring us up making sure we're equipped so that the body can be built up so they can be grown up in their faith there's nothing worse than a bunch of adults who look like kids who are acting like children in the airplane I was laughing we were back in the 30th 31st row or something (laughs) And that plane lands, and, you know, 80 people in front of you, what are they acting like? They're acting like kindergartners. They're not going to get off for a good 10 minutes. But they jump up, and they jostle each other, and they get irritated, and they bang each other with suitcases. They're like like a bunch of kindergarten kids, grown adults acting like children. That's what he says we're not supposed to be like. The body is supposed to grow up reaching that unity, that harmony and faith and knowledge, working well together, becoming mature, stable and reliable. One of my famous lines all my life has been, how come I have to be the one too? (laughs) Tough. Have you ever been in a church situation where 20% of the people were doing all the work? I'll bet you, you at some point said to yourself, how come I have to be the one to? And the answer is because you're a saint of God. Because you're part of the body of Christ. That's their problem. They're not acting mature. We don't get to excuse it away in our own lives just because they are. We need to be stable, reliable, and, and truthful people that are yes, be yes, or no, no. If if there's something where we can be involved in and we can be fruitful and helpful with it, great. Say yes. If you can't, then say no. There's no guilt associated with it. It's just that that's the job of the body. And it's not just at church. You have a world that you live in that's unique to you. I know the lady that lives next to to my house. Her name is Bonnie. I know where Bonnie lives. I know something about Bonnie's needs. Barb's much better at it than I am. But I do know something about Bonnie's needs. I know something about where she lives. I know. I, I got it. You don't know nothing about Bonnie. But I don't know anything about your next door neighbor or the person you work with or your family, children, husbands, grandkids, whatever. They're not in my world. They're in your world. Who's going to reach them? Not me. That's going to be you in your world, just like it's me in my world. We're supposed to be being built up, grown up, mature up, so that the body builds itself up in love. And the, and the, and the key line is there. Uh, let me read, let me go back, verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants, kids, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. We're going to look like him. For from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, it grows and it builds itself up in love as each part does its work. It's not your job to do my job, nor is it my job to do your job. We, we, we get from Christ our energy, our, our strength, all the opportunities. When I went to, to resign as head of school here a year and a half ago, the, the mental picture I had, and I'd been praying it for about a year, was, Lord, I got, a, I got a, a plain new whiteboard. So after 35 years of every morning knowing what my job was, I was approaching a time period when I had a brand new clean whiteboard. And I did, I wasn't exactly sure precisely what ministries and activities and things that I should be involved in. And so I started praying, Lord, write on my whiteboard. Put put on the whiteboard what I'm supposed to be doing. And it didn't take very long for my whiteboard to fill up pretty pretty significantly. That the source of what's on my whiteboard is the Lord. And he's provided energy and strength and opportunity and networking and and chances for this that I never would have thought about. And it's, and it's not for just the select few. The Bible says the whole body. What happens is the, the louder, more uh, uh, noticeable gifts, the guy who's got the not so noticeable gifts or the quieter gifts has a tendency to go, well, that is so bad. That gift, whatever it is, whether service or helping or loving or all the other things that we looked at as we looked at those lists, those are all vital for the people in your world and for the church body that you you, uh, identify with. They're held together and they're built up in love. Our motivation is love. Each part does its job. Not my job, your job. I can't do yours. You can't do mine. But we can't excuse it away either. We can't say, well, you know, that's for those guys we pay. You know? We pay the pastor and the associate pastor and the youth guy. They, they need to go do the work. Mmm. They're busy mending nets, getting everybody else prepared and ready and, and, and efficient at, at our fishing we dare not do that. Well, that's her job or his job or their job. It's our job. Let's pray. Lord, this is an in-your-face kind of portion of Scripture. You've been at it for the last two chapters, really, telling us over and over again how important it is that there be harmony or unity and that the goal is for us all to participate in the body of Christ. Wherever and however our gifts and opportunities, our natural talents, those things that you've given us as interests, all of that goes together and, and and makes a package. And it is not just the full-time guy that we pay. it's the It's the participation of every part of the body. Hands and feet and eyes and all the organs in between. Lord, help us even tonight to be to be convicted where we've not participated and be committed to, 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 to being an active participant. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.